Hey, this is Steve Adubato. This is the Steve Adubato Leadership Hour. We're on AM 970, The Answer. This is, uh, by the way, check out AM 970 for the Joe Piscopo. Piscopo in the morning, right? Piscopo is great. Um, I know I'm going to be joining those guys in just a little bit. I think next week, Mary, to talk a little bit about uh, the Leadership Hour and other things that we are doing. Talk about national politics, uh, state politics, a whole bunch of things. Steve Adubato here, Mary Gamba in the studio. Mary, how are you doing today? I am doing great. It's a beautiful, wonderful Sunday afternoon. It sure is. It's Sunday at 2 p.m. You're listening to us, as I said, on the radio on AM 970. You'll also pick us up on a uh, follow-up podcast. Today, we're going to be touching on the question of leadership and how your approach to leadership comes from the family you were raised in, the neighborhood you grew up in, the schools that you went to. I coach and train and teach people about leadership. I've been doing it for about 15, 20 years. And I think people think that somehow they got plopped into this operation as a leader and somehow they read a book on leadership and that's who they are as a leader. And I'm big time convinced that who we are as leaders in many ways and our strengths, along with our foibles, if you will, wind up being a product in one way or another of how we, how we grew up, where we grew up, who we grew up with, our parents, our siblings, the school, the neighborhood, et cetera, et cetera. Before we uh, bring on a young lady who I know knows this issue very well, um, Mary, real quick thoughts? Well, it's interesting. You and I have talked offline about family and the differences between growing up, how you were raised, nature versus nurture. I've said to you, I was raised in a family where everything was fair. Everything was kind. Everything was Brady Bunch. And thank you, Mom and Dad. It was a wonderful upbringing. However. I'm sorry, this was in this country? It was. It was. It was in, in New Jersey? Beautiful Woodbridge, New Jersey. Beautiful. And, well, Fords. But if you say Fords, nobody seems to know where that is. So I go Is that a Woodbridge. legal town? It is. Okay, it is a yeah. legal town. One of the many, many, what, 522 tiny towns in our state. Of New Jersey. But 587, anyhow, who's oh, counting? 87, 22, whatever it takes. So in terms of just how that could be good, it sometimes brought challenges because when you do go into the real world, uh, not everything is fair. So it did train me to be a leader in a different way that I'm definitely more empathetic, but I did need to develop a tough skin because I didn't develop that at a young age. You know, uh, Mary grew up in a different quote-unquote neighborhood than I grew up in, but the young lady on the phone right now grew up not only in the same neighborhood in Newark, New Jersey in the North Ward of Newark, and uh, you could check it out at the time in the 70s, largely an Italian-American, very ethnic community, now much more diverse, uh, Hispanic, uh, African-American. But she not only grew up in the same neighborhood in Newark, she grew up in the same household. She is, in fact, my little sister. I can't even call her that anymore. She's a CEO. She's a leader. She's been a principal. She's Michelle Adubato. She is the chief executive officer of an organization our father started in 1970 called the Northward Center, a community-based organization in Newark, New Jersey, providing social services for seniors, for kids, to charter schools. Um, my sister also created something called the Center for Autism. That has been her passion for many years. And she is an extraordinary leader. And she's on the phone right now. How you doing, Michelle? I'm uh, laughing a bit. Why? I was thinking about Mary. I know (laughs) about fairness. We saw a family that was fair and kind every Friday night called the Brady Butch. Yes. That's the only time our family saw that. Oh, so you were so you were looking in my window at my house in Fords? You saw, oh, you mean the TV show, The Brady Bunch. Bunch. That's the family. Yes. Where's that family? So, Michelle... 
By the way, uh, Steve Adubato, this is the Leadership Hour. Mary Gamma's in the house. Michelle Adubato is on the line with us right now. And I got to go right to this. By the way, if you want to find out about things I've written about family and leadership, check out my book. Michelle, am I doing enough plugging? My book is called Lessons I, in Leadership. You have about 30 seconds left. Yeah, that's it. You have no more time. Um, so here's the question. How much of your leadership style, not only as the chief executive officer of one of the country's most respected social service organizations, but also as a principal for how many years in the Newark Public Schools? 25 years. Got it. For public school principal for 10. How much of your leadership style was and is a product of, I mean, influenced by our dad's leadership style, which let's just say was not like Mr. Brady, tough, rough, gruff, aggressive, in your face, you never had a doubt what he was saying. And if you didn't do what he expected you to do, there were consequences to pay. Am I overstating it, Michelle? I'm going to say this. We are adult learners, okay? <laughs> As an educator, I can say that we always have something to learn. So that being said, absolutely what we grew up with was in your face, harsh leadership style of you need to do it, you need to do it now, and you need to do it right. And what about if you didn't do it right? If you didn't do it right, you were, the word criticized isn't the right word. Ridiculed? Screamed at, yelled at, ridiculed. And, you know, when I look at who I am as a leader, I think one of the things that we all do, if we're good leaders, is we think about communication and did I communicate that correctly? So the good part of growing up in a household like that is that you are understanding that there needs to be mission, there needs to be purpose, there needs to be accountability outcomes. Accountability. There has to be outcomes. Well, let's talk about this. See, this is so interesting. What Michelle is saying is that, by the way, our dad, <laughs> you should Google Steve Adubato Sr. and right. understand the incredible things that he accomplished in his lifetime. But he's still alive, not doing well physically, if you will, but I'll tell you what. But he gave he, me a big hug this morning. He did. He, did, he see, sure did. He did not I'm give me favorite. the— That's how we know. <laughs> Michelle, we're doing the Steve—hold on. on one second. We're doing the Steve Adubato Family Hour on AM 970 next season, and we'll talk about that then. Um, but right. I did not get the hug from him this morning, but I'm going to share this. What we also—what we learned is about getting—here's my view of it. We learned about accountability, getting things done, yes. challenging people when they don't get things done, setting specific and hard deadlines, and getting people to verify that they did what they said they were going to do instead of saying, yeah, I'm working on that. And that is lacking today. What do you mean? And so I was like that as a principal, certainly founding my own organization. The Center for and Autism. And coming here as the CEO. I've always understood— and been about the results. So when you're not getting the results, what's the reason? And then we talk about the why. So why is it that you couldn't take X, Y, and Z and accomplish that? So I take some time, and this is where, you know, I think I need to work on it along with the people that I work with, is that did you understand what you needed to do, or was the motivation not there to do it? So, I mean, I'm a big believer of, of why are you motivated? Is it my job to motivate you? Is it intrinsic? So, I, you know, we spent some time on that. And what have you concluded? Say, and, and one thing I've learned is I think it's very difficult to change somebody's internal clock. 
What do you mean? What I've recognized is you can teach skills and you can gain information, but if someone doesn't have that intrinsic understanding that I need to grow, I need to do better, I care about what I'm doing, and I'm all in, that to me is what you need. And then what you can do as a leader is to cultivate those skills and talents into other areas. So uh, go ahead, go ahead. I'll let you finish. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, it's my my, my sister. I respect to you and your position as a leader. I'm gonna let you finish, but I'm I'm chomping at the bit. Go ahead. Go ahead. I know you are. All right, you ready? By the way, my sister, strong, tough, compassionate leader. But both of us have shared, and I don't want to, if people tune into the Leadership Hour, uh, Steve Adubato here with Mary Gamba and Michelle Adubato on the line. Um, I don't want people to think that what we talk about is my leadership stuff all the time. I just only want to talk about that in the context of what others might learn from it. I'm going to ask you this, Michelle. How hard have you had to work over the years? Because I know I have. In terms of what you expect of yourself and making noises and monitoring that or modifying that in terms of what you expect from other people on the team because it ain't the same thing. Constantly. It isn't the same thing. So then I sit and think about, did I, like, again, did I communicate that? Was I too harsh in the way I communicated it? So it's more about what I said or how I said it than what I said. And I think, you know, we go back and forth with that. Like, so you're upset with an outcome. You've said the same thing to this person 16 times. Yes. So is it on the person or is it on you? What do you think? I think it's a combination of they have to take some ownership, but then I do self-examine and go, why is it that I'm saying this 16 times to the same person? What needs to change? Is the person in the right fit? And there's a lot of that going on. I mean, are Sometimes they sitting on the right seat, uh, Jim? Absolutely. Are they on the right seat on the bus? And if they're exactly. not, that's on you as the leader, Michelle, on Absolutely. me as the leader, and every leader listening to us on AM 970 to change that person's seat on the bus or, frankly, yeah. escort them off the bus. And have done that many times. I've done that many times. How hard is it for you to change people, let them go, tell them they're not up for the job? That's a leadership challenge. How hard is that for you? It's very difficult, and it's also a trust factor especially if I'm changing someone's position to say, you know, this didn't work out, but I still think there's something there. Why don't we try something else? And I just actually had this conversation with one of my employees who I believe has real talent, but I've not, and I go back to myself, I feel like I've not been able to harness it mm. and he's not been able to connect to it. Wow. So I said to him, I'm going to change you into a different position and, you know, he put his head down. And I said, instead of putting your head down, I said, this is the exact issue. Listen to what I just said. I have faith in you. I think that you have the ability to be here. I need you to do this and see if you can be successful in that. And then maybe we can move on from there. But the he was hurt. Is, I think, especially the younger, and I hate to say this. like, Go ahead, I'm do so the millennial thing. Open up the – oh, Michelle, I'm sorry for we're talking over you on the radio. Get the millennial thing. Put it on the table. The Pandora's oh, yeah. box they, has opened. Are millennials now, different? They Are, wanted. Uh, put, put it on the table. Steve Adubato, Michelle Adubato. Mary, we're going to talk millennials right now. We've got two more minutes. Michelle, yeah. do you, what difference do you think it is, quote, leading millennials versus leading the rest of us? They want it now. They expect it sooner. 
and not understanding how you have to work towards things. Wow. Do you think that there's more hand-holding with millennials or a level of expectation that you are going to be there to make their lives better because you are just so lucky that they're in your presence? <laughs> Where'd you hear that from? Are we talking to it? <laughs> it's I, called absolutely. work. It's and not I called therapy. Where that comes, you know, you wonder where that culture comes from. It right. comes from us as the parents. Yes, the, absolutely. Uh, the parents, Everyone's a winner, right? Oh, yeah. Everyone's getting that uh, participation award for doing such right. a great job. I just want to say I've read a really – I didn't read it. I just skimmed through it um, called Lessons in Leadership. Best oh. chapter I ever read oh. was Great Leaders Sometimes Piss People Off. Wow, that has been Where a did you pick up this book, by the way? <laughs> is that published by this Rutgers, about, um, Rutgers University Press? One of the books that you gave me. But that's because you don't buy them. So, um, Michelle, great leaders sometimes piss people off. It doesn't come from me. It comes from General Colin Powell. What does that have to do with leading millennials? Because sometimes the truth matters. And we can sit there and talk about semantics, but wrong is wrong. And so sometimes you have to confront that to say, this is what's going on. You know, we need to fix this together, but you need to own up to it, too. Wow. Okay, well, let me just say this. As we wrap up with Michelle Adubato, the chief executive officer of the Northward Center, an organization started by Steve Adubato Sr. Uh, many years ago, actually, 1970. Um, incredible organization, multifaceted, challenging every day, deal with people and budgets and relationships and and Michelle Adubato is doing it every day. I gotta say this to you. I've said this to Mary before. We may be flawed as leaders in our family, but we are expert at confrontation. <laughs> I, I'm not hey, saying anything. I'm the nice one in the group. Yeah. What does that? If you're the nice one, what does that that's say? A, this is as nice as it gets. It's me. By the way, we have another sister. My much much older sister who is the principal of the Robert Treat Academy Charter School, which was- doing a great job. She's doing a great job. And let's just say she has a different leadership style. Is that fair to say? Yes. But influenced by our family of origin. <laughs> That's true. My sister's laughing because when we get off the line, she's going to be texting me saying, we need to talk. There are real issues I couldn't say because my mother, who is listening right now, hey, mom, how you doing? Fran Adubato listens to AM 970 every Sunday to Leadership she Hour. She loves us equally. No, 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 no. Uh, I have a special bond with my mom as the only son. That's just the way it is. And it's part of my leadership style is to know how special I am. Michelle Adubato, I want to thank you for joining us. Mary, you want to say anything to Michelle? Thank you for joining us, Michelle. Always Thanks, a pleasure. Mary, you're great. Oh, thank you. What? Wait, what? you could just keep it coming. Keep it coming. All right. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. That was Michelle Adubato. This is Steve Adubato. This is the Leadership Hour. And that is Mary Gamba, who is trying to undercut me. As we speak, and we'll talk about leadership and paranoia right after this. This is Mary Gamba. If you want more leadership tips and tools, log on to stand-deliver.com. That's stand-deliver.com. Steve Adubato here. You're listening to the Leadership Hour on AM 970 or on a uh, follow-up podcast, Mary Gamba. You just heard Michelle Adubato. And by the way, this isn't about the Adubato family and leadership. I am convinced that our family the way we're dealt with and treated by our parents, our relationships with our siblings, et cetera, influences our leadership style greatly. But here's my question for you. 
By the way, check out our website, stand-deliver.com. Follow me. We'll get these promotional things out of the way. Follow me on Twitter. Go ahead. Steve Adubato. That's A-D-U-B-A-T-O. And then on Facebook, Steve Adubato, Ph.D. Great. And by the way, in the second half hour of the Leadership Hour, you're going to listen to State of Affairs. It's our public affairs program. They've got a whole range of state leaders that are dealing with incredibly challenging and difficult issues in the state of New Jersey. Check that out in the second half hour of the Leadership Hour. So here's where I'm going. Even though we're influenced by, our leadership style is influenced by the family we grew up in, the home we grew up in, it's not set in stone. What I mean by that is this. When I met you 18 years ago, you were not as assertive as you are today. You were not as confident as you are today. You did not take any as many risks as you do today. And frankly, you've grown tremendously as a leader. How does that happen if you grew up where you did? Because you were talking about that you grew up in the Brady Bunch. Right. You don't act like you're running the Brady Bunch now. No, and it's about balance. It's about the worst thing that a leader can do is say simply, because of my childhood, I am X. Or because I didn't get hugged enough as a child, I'm more needy. Wow, 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 wow. You and I talk about it all (laughs) the time. Cry me a river. And it's important to realize, and whether you are coaching and mentoring as a parent or earlier we were talking about some athletic teams, things like that, if you are leading a team toward any common goal, you need to put all that aside and decide that you are in control of who you are as a leader, whether that means you may look upon someone else, you may read a book, you may just say, listen, I don't want to be angry anymore. I don't want to be all over the place or scattered or disorganized, whatever the thing is. Figure it out and address it because only you can change you. You can't use your upbringing as a crutch forever. Yeah, but here's the dilemma. I do believe your background, your family, your relationship with your parents, your siblings, the neighborhood you grew up in. Look, that's like saying that Colin Powell, who grew up in the Bronx in a poor neighborhood, no money, like a lot of other people who wind up being extraordinary leaders, that growing up in that environment versus somebody who grew up in an incredibly privileged environment, that their leadership style and their interaction with other people are not is not influenced by that. I think that it's extremely influenced by that. And and I think we're saying the same thing in a different way. You say don't use it as an excuse. You don't want to use it as an excuse for, say, we were talking just with Michelle just a few moments ago, that if you say, wow, our father was really tough and he had a certain communication style, you could still choose what leader you want to be. You can take the good parts of that. A lot but of then, good parts. And then you could also say, I am going to overcome so this way for my children and for my team at the office that they are going to be that much better off because I learned from those experiences. So it's so interesting. And even though we're talking about leadership, sometimes the difference between talking about leadership and life is a very thin line. And sometimes I'm not even sure it's there. So even when it comes to parenting, how much of how – think about this, folks, because to me – Being a parent is being a leader, even though most homes have two CEOs, right? And that never goes well. I think that. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, your husband, Bill, is listening right now. Uh, No, he's not. No, he's not. Hold on on one second. Your co-CEO, Bill Gamba. If my husband hears this episode and tells me that he heard it, then I will do the laundry and the cooking and the house cleaning from now until the end of time. Because we, he's off and running, he's taking the boys to wherever they're going, different priorities, separate realities, doesn't make him a bad person, but that's where that level of expectation comes in. And understanding, you were just saying that 
co-CEOs. You need to have, even if it's different people are managing different things, I handle the laundry. He handles the cooking and the supermarket shopping. Do you you decide on the delegation of those responsibilities? Which is a leadership question, by the way. It is. For us, it was a matter of who does which better and more efficiently and effectively and got it done. And so that came down to that and being aware enough as a leader Mm. of your household. And it's the same in the office. If you were doing something and you say, wait a second, I think that Nicole can handle that a lot better because she's younger. She grew up with social media. She grew up understanding how that works, Facebook, Twitter. You need to lean on people and understand one another's uh, strengths and then areas that maybe you're not so strong Put people in a position to succeed as part of leadership. Absolutely. By the way, it's interesting. Uh, Bill Gamba, your husband, who mm-hmm. is a top-notch professional in what he does, he can listen to the podcast. Just make sure he does that. I will make I, sure that he does I force so. my wife, Jen, to listen to the mm-hmm. podcast. And the operative word is force. He has listened, yes. I just want to clarify that. Um, so here's where I want to go with this. Mary, I, see, Mary never knows where I'm going with this. I love to see her face when I bring things up. But that's what keeps it fun. Yeah, so here it is. We were talking about millennials before. My sister, Michelle Adubato, was... Uh, her organization has a lot of millennials. We have some very talented, top-notch people who happen to be in that category called millennials. And we got really lucky because they are fantastic. They are rock stars. And they're listening now, which is why we're saying all nice things about them, uh, and also because it's true. Do you actually believe, even though we have such talented people who happen to be millennials on our team, do you actually think there is something different about leading millennials Versus anyone else. And you got to break it down. And you can't do the whole, oh, everybody gets a trophy. So you, you, you got to give me more than that. You need to make sure that you understand that everyone is different on your team. If that means because they're a millennial, if that means because, and we've talked about gender communication before, you need to understand what works for your certain employee. Right now, millennials is a buzzword. Everyone understands. There is a pattern. There is definitely, it is not even debatable. There is a pattern with a certain age group, and it gets redefined every day, whether it's 18 to 32. I'm not sure of the Just age Just assume group. it's that for a second. And assume it's that. And, of course, psychologists are trying to figure out why this happened. It's less about the why, and it's more about now what are we going to do about it. What's the it? The it is helping them to understand, even if their parents and their professors in college didn't help them to be independent, self-motivated. And your sister hit it on the head. She was talking about, you know, what motivates that person. If what is motivating that person that comes into the door every day at work is just getting their paycheck at the end of the week, whether they're a millennial or not, it's not going to matter. But in, mm. you know, that's what we're talking about right here. Okay. But here's, here's the other part that I find fascinating. Mary and I talk a lot about, there's a chapter in the book, it's called uh, Getting and Receiving Feedback. Quote, can you handle the truth? And the great quote, you can't handle the truth coming from a few good men. Jack Nicholson on the witness stand, Tom Cruise, um, before he went off whatever end he went off. It was great in that movie when he was challenging Nicholson, saying, I want the truth. And Nicholson responds, you can't handle the truth. And there's a reason I'm going here. And here's what it is. I often question when it comes to giving feedback about performance, whether you have to take a different tact, tone, demeanor, approach with someone who is in his or her 20s because he or she has not had a whole lot of experience getting direct, specific, often hard to hear, but constructive 
feedback, some people call it criticism. Am I making too much of this? Not at all. Those same people that you're referring to don't even know what to do with that feedback that you're giving them. It's bad enough that their feelings are hurt. If you give them feedback, oh, I can't believe that you sent that out. The communication was sloppy. Uh, you didn't run it by me first. Whatever the issue is, it's a matter of them. Then when you give them the feedback, now what am I going to do with it? So it is almost like you're retraining them on something that to you would what? hope to be self-starters, to be somebody that comes in in the morning and doesn't just check off a box and say, I did my job no, today. No, no, we're talking about the feedback. But what, the feedback, what do you, how, what do you, Excuse me for talking over you, Mary. Steve Adubato with Mary Gamba, the Leadership Hour, talking about every leadership issue under the sun. Um, but here's the thing. Are we retraining them to receive feedback? They've never received it before. They have had people hand-holding them from literally from kindergarten with their parents helping them doing their homework through college with, oh, let me help edit your... There's a difference between helping and hand-holding and giving them the tools that they need to be independent. And I do feel that a lot of the people that we're talking about, the millennials that are in their 20s nowadays, mm. do not even know how to use the feedback. So you need to be even more specific, say exactly what you mean. You can't just say, I need you to do that better. You need mm. to say, you should have done, be very specific. Well, you know what's so interesting about this? There have been times that I've given quote unquote feedback to some folks uh, who happen to fall in that age category. And in my mind, Mary and I often talk about, quote-unquote, separate realities, which uh, I talked about this before in the Leadership Hour, a phrase that's coined, that was coined by Dr. Richard Carlson, uh, the late Richard Carlson in his book, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. And this is what I mean by separate realities. My reality, when I'm giving feedback to someone, just let's say in his or her 20s, is that I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to be specific. I'm trying to help you understand that what you just did didn't work because of these reasons. The performance standard you need to get to is here, right? And here are some ways to get there. And I just want you to know that right now, it's not happening. I've seen people when I do that, they turn red, their eyes start to water, their body starts to tremble. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I have to stop. Do you think that part of it is because we are older and we have already lived, learned, been there, done that, that maybe it could be our expectation of how they should receive that feedback is skewed. But they are working in an organization, getting paid a salary, getting benefits, part of the team, and the team can't succeed. Okay, the, I hate to do the sports thing again, but that's like saying you're on a sports team, you're on a football team. The receiver keeps dropping the ball or running the wrong play in football. And the coach has to say, oh, well, He's 23 years old. I have to approach him a certain way. I can't tell him directly, listen, you keep running the wrong pattern. If you do that and you keep dropping the ball, we're never going to get a first down and we're not going to win. So I'm going to have to take you off the field. And the 23-year-old talented athlete who's been told he's great his whole life is now saying, I can't believe you spoke to me that way, and then starts sulking on the sidelines. The coach has to be direct, respectful. Forget about the screaming and yelling. Take that out of the equation. Just being direct. I'm saying I think it's even harder than ever before with the right tone, the best intentions, wanting to be helpful, to even have an honest conversation with certain millennials. I agree. And it also involves, and after you have that conversation, I feel in the feedback that I've given to the people on our team is there is a lot more follow-up and follow-through on the part of the leader to make sure 
that the people that you gave that feedback to really understood. Did you understand? Check back with them. There's a lot more touch points than should be expected considering, you know, and I'm not just now talking about our own team. I'm no, just no, saying. No, we, we deal with millennials all the time. Absolutely. And, and we, also, we also deal with teenagers because we run our not-for-profit stand-and-deliver program, which coaches and teaches leadership skills. Mary's been running, for, running it for 18 years. And here's the thing. They're not even millennials. They're pre-millennials, and we have to give them direct feedback about their communication and presentation skills. And if they don't take it and use it, they're not going to get better. Exactly. And I think we have a job and a responsibility as parents, as leaders. We have already been there. We understand what they're going through. So as challenging as it is, we need to help them. All right. Uh, a couple minutes left. Let's do this. Expectation game? Mm-hmm. Okay. So... Again, this isn't really just about millennials. It's about a larger question. But Mary and I were talking as we were getting ready for the leadership hour this week about you do something with the team member. You give someone a raise. You give them a promotion. You do whatever you do. And in your mind, you think the reaction is going to be a certain reaction uh, to new responsibilities, whatever it is. And you're in your mind, you prepare for how positive it's going to be. And in actuality, sometimes it doesn't turn out that way, and the other person doesn't give you that reaction, and they're not thrilled, to say the least, and you're thrown. It happens in the moment, real life. What do you do? You are stunned. I think in those situations, it's really hard to understand, and you need to step out of yourself and really ask yourself, was it something that I did wrong? Did I maybe say it the wrong way? Did I build something up in my mind that I thought was going to be perceived in a certain way as something really great? And you ask yourself a lot of questions as a leader, maybe not even in the moment, but afterwards you reflect back. And I think the greatest leaders will do that. They'll say, what could and should I have done differently in that situation? And sometimes that answer may be absolutely nothing. You did the best with what you had and the expectation just wasn't there. Yeah, let's follow up on this. In our organization right now, and again, there are people who run organizations, departments, they're entrepreneurs. There are leaders listening of all stripes right now on AM 970. Steve Adubato here with Mary Gamba. We've got a couple minutes left. I want to get right into this real quick. We happen to have a solid team member leaving as we speak, a longtime team member uh, who has made a great contribution to our team. But when that person leaves, I decided you know what, we're not just going to bring in somebody else to replace that person at a certain level, um, certain salary, comparable, blah, 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 blah. You know what, we're going to ask ourselves of that person's responsibilities, how do we parcel them out to other people on the team, right? Mm -hmm. Not that you can just keep dumping more work on people, but we decided to strategically do that. Mm -hmm. How important is it to constantly find opportunities for people to grow, develop, move up, become greater leaders, do they appreciate a load of question I know? Or do they say, why are you giving me more work? It's how you do it. By the way, with more money. With more money, you need to also then recognize that a cup is only going to hold so much water. Eventually, that water is going to spill over the side. Your people on your team are the same way. Eventually, they are going to become frustrated. They're going to hit a breaking point. What you don't want to happen is have them use that frustration to then leave, especially if you think they're really talented. So what we did is we said, what can we give them? What greater responsibilities? But then we also asked a question of them. And don't just assume that you know what it is that needs to come off of his or her plate. 
what should come off your plate that would make sense to go to someone new that we're bringing but in? But you can't give every, you can't take everything as a leader. You can't take everything off someone's plate that he or she wants off their plate. Exactly. Because it's got to get done. Exactly. I've, you and I have worked together for 18 years. I bring out my own trash. I take care of my own FedEx. I take care of things that most people would say, oh, why don't you let, you know, so-and-so do it? They're beneath you or they are, you, you know, they report to you. But it goes back to the whole concept of you want to show and lead by example. And if you expect them to do those more menial mundane tasks if you do them yourself they're going to do them with a smile if you're doing it that way. Do you want to admit this on the air or am I there's something else that you've been doing for a long time that doesn't fall into the normal um job category you want to describe it? Uh my hair looks good today. You you want me not to say it? (laughs) Oh no you could of course say it I am multi-talented. Mary what was real quick we got 30 seconds not like real quick what did you do you had a million different jobs. Yeah no I used to uh, I went to beauty school right out of high school before I went to college and then I taught at beauty school and then I was able to morph that into making you look great and cut your hair as needed. I've been to all kinds of different people pay overpay Mary's like no she begged me to allow me to allow her to cut my hair. Is that well, true? you had a couple of bad haircuts in there. I just had to offer. <laughs> By the way, she doesn't beg me. I beg her. And I'm just saying she's multi-talented. That's why she's on the Steve Adubato Leadership Hour. She is Mary Gamba. I'm Steve Adubato. Stay tuned for State of Affairs with... Steve Adubato. You weren't on cue, Mary. Uh, where we talk to leaders in the state of New Jersey about all kinds of important issues. This is AM970. Check out our website at stand-deliver.com. Twitter at Steve Adubato and at Facebook, Steve Adubato, PhD from the great Rutgers University. Steve Adubato, the Leadership Hour, we'll check you out next week. This is Mary Gamba. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with State of Affairs with Steve Adubato, where we look at the most pressing issues facing the state of New Jersey. This edition of the Steve Adubato Leadership Hour has been made possible by New Jersey Resources. Hi, I'm Dr. Jeffrey LeBenger. At Summit Medical Group, we believe that all citizens need to be informed about the important healthcare issues that affect their lives. That's why we're very proud to support important programming produced by the Caucus Educational Corporation. State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is brought to you from the Agnes Veris NJTV studio at 2 Gateway. Funding has been provided by... Summit Medical Group, Wells Fargo, the Russell Berry Foundation, Georgian Court University, the Turrell Fund, supporting right from the start NJ, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and by the New Jersey Office of the Insurance Fraud Prosecutor. Insurance fraud costs New Jersey families $1,300 a year. Promotional support provided by NJ Biz, all business, all New Jersey and by Observer New Jersey Politics. Welcome to State of Affairs. I'm Steve Adubato. We are coming to you from the Agnes Ferris NJTV studio. It is my honor and my pleasure to welcome for the first time Christine Norbert Beyer, who is Commissioner of New Jersey Department of Children and Families. Good to see you, Commissioner. Yeah, thank you. Nice meeting you. Same here. Describe your organization. So the Department of Children and Families is the, you know, cabinet level department. Um, We are the state agency focused on 
all things children. And um, so while we do have protective services, uh, formerly DIFUS, now Child Protection and Permanency, mm. we also run a number of other programs for children, for families, youth, you know, up to age 21. Um, substance abuse, mental health treatment. We do a lot of prevention services. Um, so, you know, we are a lot more than protective services. Commissioner, I'm curious about this. The most pressing, difficult, perplexing problems facing our most vulnerable children, what are they? Uh, I think one of the challenges that, you know, we have in the state right now is that um, poverty is a big issue for many of the families that we serve within the Division of Child Protection and Permanency and even in some of our other divisions. And so, you know, there are a lot of issues that happen as a result of that. Um, you know, some of that is the stress of being having you know trying to make ends meet with hmm. your family and um, and so you know I would say that um, for children it's um, just wanting get the support that they need or having the support that they need from their families feeling safe having their basic needs is it met. emotional support physical nutrition issues it's all, of, all the, of it it's all of the above yeah all of the above it, it, and is it disproportionately, uh, the, the, the children you serve, the families you serve, are they disproportionately socioeconomically in a different place on the ladder, poor? Um, it depends on the service. You know, I think that there is a misnomer that child welfare or child protective services typically serve um, low-income families or that, you know, we serve uh, disproportionately in inner cities. Mm. And really, that's not the case. I mean, unfortunately, child abuse and neglect knows no socioeconomic bounds. Mm. Um, and so for protection and permanency, that crosses, you know, barriers. But um, I would say that in some of our other programs, some of our prevention programs, our division of community um, partnerships, you know, there's that's where we see families who are struggling financially, who are on public assistance. Um, you know, it's important for us to be able to ensure that young children get to school, um, early intervention services. And so we partner with a lot of other departments around the state to ensure that, you know, young children and families get what they need so that they're giving kids mm -hmm. a good start so they don't end up getting into our child protection system. You're listening to uh, Christine Norbert Beyer. Uh, she's the commissioner of the New Jersey Department of Children and Families. This is Steve Adubato. And I'm curious about something. You talk about partnerships and collaboration. I mentioned to you before we get on the air that um, we've had Cecilia Zalkine. Cecilia was in today, uh, actually taping, right, Jackie? Um, for advocates of okay. advocates for children in New Jersey. Yeah. We're having a conversation about um, infants and toddlers zero to three, if you will, mm -hmm. an initiative we're doing called Right From The Start NJ. <clears throat> in terms of your department, what is the responsibility and role you have for protecting infants and toddlers? Is there a specific role? Um, I would say- Excuse me for interrupting, because I know it's, we have the Commissioner of Health in today, it's broken up, so, some of those responsibilities are there. Some of it may be in your area, some of it may be in other areas of state government. It's fragmented, yeah. is it not? I don't know that I would say it's fragmented. I think it's that it is complex. And I think that, you know, each of the state departments have a role to play. Um, and when we do it right, we work together um, in order to ensure that kids zero to three get what they need. What do they need? 
Um, I think that from our perspective in the, de in the Department of Children and Families, we're really looking at um, how do we support parents in that they can give their kids zero to three what they need. Some of that is ensuring that they have protective factors, that um, they send their kids to um, early intervention if necessary, um, that they get to the appropriate medical care, that kids are being seen regularly mm. by pediatricians. Mm. Um, it's preventive. It's uh, absolutely <clears throat> preventive. And by the way, you said this, excuse me for interrupting, Commissioner. You said we go, we're beyond child protection. Prevention is the focus. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, one of the things that I struggle with and um, is something that I'm going to have to really work very hard on as the commissioner is the branding of our department. People think DC. Branding? The branding, yeah, branding of the Department of Children and Families because most people in the state believe that DCF is synonymous with protective services or DCPNP. Formerly DIFUS. A lot of um, acronyms. Yeah, uh, it's too many acronyms. <laughs> um, but it's child protection. And so when they hear DCF, they think automatically child protection, foster care. There must adoption. be an abuse situation, and they're that's coming right. in, the state's coming in to quote unquote that's protect right. that child. Yeah, and so. And that's part of what you do. That is, and it's an important part of what we do, but it's not the only thing we do. And so that's when families are deeper into the system or after the fact. And so, you know, a lot of our focus is about how do we prevent child abuse and neglect? How do we ensure that families have what they need, that parents have the education, the supports, the programs and services that they need in order to be able to keep their kids safe. And um, so our focus really is going to be about prevention. And um, you know, one of the ways that states child welfare is funded in states um, traditionally has been when kids are in, in foster care. That's right. And then the federal government gives um, money to the states to After take the care of those children in care. And so there really has never been a mechanism to mm. draw down dollars specifically for prevention. And that changed in February of this past year, um, of this year, what 2018. Um, there was a new federal law passed called Family First Prevention Act. And so that will give states the opportunity to draw down dollars um, for prevention services so that we can actually provide services to kids in home, to their families in home before things get to the point of, of you know, removal being necessary or before an uh, imminent risk. Commissioner, let me, before I let you out, Commissioner uh, Christine Norbert Beyer, Commissioner of New Jersey Department of Children and Families. I'm curious about this on a personal level. How'd yeah. you get into this whole thing? Why do you care so much? How did I get into this? Um, the Reader's Digest version. I'm going old school on you. <laughs> yeah, do you know what? Well, I will tell you that I went to Stockton. I graduated yep. from Stockton. And you went to Rutgers as well. And I went to Rutgers with an MSW, bachelor's yes. from Stockton. We were not there the same yeah. years, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe close. Go ahead. Um, and, um, and I was a marketing major. I went to school as a marketing major, and I got a D in marketing my freshman year. What? And I decided I needed to rethink my plan. <laughs> That's what... And so as a result of that, I started taking always interested in social issues, social justice. And so I took some social work classes and I fell in love and is the, rest the rest history? is history. Sorry for yeah. doing that because they're like, you gotta go to a break. I said, I wanna know more, I'm sorry. <laughs> Commissioner, thank you so much, yeah. we appreciate thank it. You. Thank, thank you so much. I appreciate Listen, it. Uh, we're right back with State of Affairs right after this. To see more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato programs, visit us online at stateofaffairsnj.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. 
Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD. And follow us on Twitter at Steve Adubato. We're pleased to welcome Michelle Sekirka, President and CEO, New Jersey Business and Industry Association. Good to see you, Michelle. Great to be here. As usual, BIA has done an important study, in this case looking at uh, the current regional business climate in New Jersey and how we rank what? In the region, the country, what? Well, unfortunately, when it comes to regional competitiveness, we are dead last. Dead last, meaning when we track trends on um, spending, on taxes, on cost of living, uh, we rank last in the region. We did a study where we took six factors and we compared ourselves to seven states in the region, northeast, and we came in dead last. Based on, is it taxes primarily? Yes. Which ones? Um, well, if you think about corporate business tax, if you think about individual tax, if you think about Individual property, meaning income tax? Yeah. If you think and then about, property. Oh, property tax, number one. Absolutely number one. So some of these taxes were not dead last, but when you rank the six factors all together and you add them up and score them, we are last. And we're not just last. We come in 33. And the next one behind us is at like 26 when you add up the factors. Add in another piece of this. There are lots of folks across this country who believe fervently, Michelle Sikirka, that we need to increase, you know where I'm going, the minimum wage, 15 bucks an hour. I see campaigns everywhere, people saying mm. it's not a livable wage. I think that you are saying that the survey found that that $15 minimum wage in New Jersey would make us more or less competitive what? Oh, no, less competitive. So our number one out migration state is Pennsylvania. They're not even having a discussion around raising minimum wage right now. In New York, you know, the yes, discussion Andrew is Cuomo different. Is in beha in yes. behalf of it. We also know what the challenge in New York is right now. It's very early on, and we already hear from our industry members, our business members who have companies in New York as well, where the challenges are. Retail, um, supermarkets, they're very challenged over there. You know, people think that um, everybody always talks about corporate greed and corporate welfare and thinks there's all this money flowing back to companies. Let's talk about Main Street companies. Their profit margin is about yo big. All right, think about the pizzeria. Think about the bakery. Think about the laundromat. Right. When you go in, you take and expand their expenses, what do they do? It's a balance sheet. They either have to increase cost or they have to cut expense. It's very easy, right? I mean, the math's easy on this. So I want to understand something else. The income tax, and again, we are doing this program. We don't know as we do this program whether there's going to be an increase in the quote-unquote millionaire's tax in the state. Governor Murphy has talked about it with us many times and, more importantly, with many other media organizations said it publicly. Um, the income tax rate in the state of New Jersey is? Well, the highest is 8.97. Yep, as we speak. Yes. In Pennsylvania, what is it? Oh, you're, now you're testing me on my numbers. It's 3%. Correct. Thank you. It's 3%. It's 3%. Significantly In lower. New York, I believe, check this out, team, as we're talking, I believe it's 5-ish. And in Florida, do you happen to know? <laughs> it's zero. zero. <laughs> and why do I raise it? I'm just curious. Yeah. doesn't matter. You, you could think taxes need to be raised or not. That's your business. How easy is it for certain people who don't like or don't want to stay in a state with a certain income tax rate to, quote, just leave? It's, well, it's very easy. So here's our, our number one challenge is that number one out migration state, Pennsylvania, right across the river, Bucks County, Lehigh Valley. I mean, could just go up the Delaware and see the migration that has taken place over time. I live and work in Mercer County for two decades. I have watched Bucks County grow as I've watched Mercer County not grow. 
Okay. Right. So you can talk about out migration to that number one state right across the river, walking with your wallet. But the other thing is you talk about Florida. Now we can't compete with Florida, let's be fair. No, right? you can't, we, that's zero. And we need a prop, we need an income tax in order to pay for our public schools and a whole range of other things. And the services that, we have rich services in the Great state of services. Jersey. But what we do have, and remember, you know, the sun shines all the time in Florida, warm right. weather. When people aren't, because people say, oh, they go to Florida for the weather. They're not going to Pennsylvania for the weather. So keep that in <laughs> mind, right? That's a definite walk with That's your wallet, fair. okay? But what they are doing is we have the new, what I call the new snowbird phenomenon. Six months in a day outside the state of New Jersey, you're not considered a resident of New Jersey for income tax purposes. So therefore... So therefore, more people, the traditional snowbird used to be go down after Christmas, come back around Easter. Now? Six months in a day. Six months in a day outside the state of New Jersey, you're not taxed on your income in the state of New Jersey. So then you have zero income tax because you're not a Florida resident. If you're a Florida resident, absolutely <sighs> correct. Yes, so we see that. I could tell you, go to Trenton Mercer Airport on a Thursday night. You will see all the folks who can afford to do it go down to Florida counting their days for the four-day weekend. Mm -hmm. What do you say, Michelle, doubles out here, what do you say to those, um, again, we don't know what's going to happen with the millionaire's tax. What do you say to those, like Governor Murphy and others, who say, you know what? We've got a pension crisis in New Jersey, a public employee pension crisis. It's underfunded. The public schools are not getting the dollars they need, um, a whole range of other services. Mm -hmm. If we do not raise taxes on the wealthiest in the state, governors often called it a fair tax, mm. we will never be able to do the things we need to do to keep services where they need to be in the state. You say? I say we need structural reform. What does that mean? That means that we need to restructure how we fund education through property tax, number one. We need to address um, how the health care benefits for state workers. Now, I'm not picking on state workers, okay, but there has been at least for five years a recommendation out there to the tune of $1.2 billion to take the health care plan from a platinum to a gold. $1.2 billion, Steve, right there at to the making. To save Yes. Yeah, but Michelle, respect. That goes right back into the budget. You could put that into the pension. But didn't public employees give up a whole range of their benefits in the 2011 pension reform plan between Governor Christie and the Democratic legislature? There's, didn't they give up a lot? Oh, there's so much more opportunity for reform. There was, re there was absolutely reform at that point in time. Step one of reform. There's so much more. And you're not, you're not having a disparate impact, a disparate treatment of the state worker. Take a look in private they sector. They don't say that. Oh, my gosh. Look at private sector benefits, okay? There's no such thing as pension plans anymore in the private sector. Everybody's on a 401k, number one. Number two, look at health care. Number one issue to New Jersey business every year when we survey them, yep. rising cost of health care, rising cost with less benefit. More and more, we're having to, the businesses are having to put that on their employees to pick up more of the premium. But public employees, without belaboring this, say, we get paid less than they do in the private sector, which is why these benefits should come to us. Yeah, I, I would respectfully disagree. You know, this isn't the 1950s, 60s, 70s, okay? We have spent years making sure that state workers get competitive wages, negotiations. <laughs> I was on a school board for over 10 years. I negotiated six labor contracts. I know how the process goes. People are treated fairly here. They're treated fairly. Real quick before you go. This whole question of tax reform, comprehensive tax reform, do you believe that we should lower the income tax rate? We should do everything we can to bring more relief back to residents. Michelle Sikirka who is the uh, president and CEO of New Jersey Business Industry Association. Thank you, Michelle, as always. Check out next time. Be right, right back at, right after this. I swear I can do that. <laughs> <laughs>
To see more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato programs, visit us online at stateofaffairsnj.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD. And follow us on Twitter at Steve Adubato. Recently, I was on location at the Rustbury Awards for Making a Difference. There, we met a 2018 honoree with a very special story. Here now is that conversation. My name is Melissa Gertz. I am the founder and executive director of the Community Justice Center. We are a legal services nonprofit in New Jersey. Uh, we just represented our 650th client. To quote Cornell West, justice is what love looks like in public. What has always called to me most, even as a child growing up in New Jersey, was not just a distaste for injustice, but an imperative to do whatever was in my power at that particular moment to rise above and against it. It drove me to law school and to choose Rutgers School of Law in Newark because of its legacy of inclusion and integrative approach to social justice and civil rights, that all oppressions and isms are one and the same. In the summer of 2004, in the midst of law school, I was interning at a civil rights organization in the Mississippi Delta when life decided to rudely interrupt. In short, I was T-boned by a truck and nearly died, but I didn't. Instead, after countless surgeries and rehabilitation, I was left with a face full of hardware that felt and looked like more like the inside of a piece of electronics. Extremely limited vision, and the most important and devastating of it all, traumatic brain injury, or TBI. Meanwhile, veterans have been returning from deployment with TBI. Everyone knows this, in large part because of the light cast by Bob Woodruff after his own injury while embedded. But what everyone doesn't know are the endless battles they face upon return, within themselves and to get the benefits and treatment they rightfully deserve. Without it, we all know the outcome, suicide. But we don't all quite understand why. But I did. And in New Jersey, there weren't any legal services outfits to help. The question is not why did I start the Community Justice Center, the question is, how could I not? My rescue dog, Kenna, and I have become quite the dynamic duo. Returning veterans and others dealing with PTSD and TBI find the comfort of Kenna coupled with my personal experience compelling and are much more open about their own struggles. And the real kicker? She was rescued just a few miles from my car accident, 1,300 miles away. A picture is worth a thousand words, right? I feel like this says it all. Our clients don't have the luxury of time. Homelessness or worse suicide is at their doorstep. Of course, medical and financial stability are critical, but my clients will tell you something else. Educate yourself. Thanks to the internet, you have many resources at your fingertips. Do you need a starting point? Start with the spoon theory. Surviving a near-death experience, I, I cherish what many others take for granted. Given my own limited energy reserve, I am quite choosy about how I spend my time and with whom I spend it. In moments of doubt and frustration, I often refer to this quote from my mentor, former New Jersey State Supreme Court Justice Virginia Long. You will have your chance to make a difference. The issue is whether you will take it. You can be an ordinary thread in the tunic, or you can be that royal touch of purple that gives distinction to the garment. Be that royal touch of purple to the world. I have been swimming upstream for so long that sometimes it feels like 
While not small to those on the receiving end, that my contribution in the fight against this particular injustice is insignificant. I'm hopeful this recognition will open more doors, more hearts, and help save even more lives from suicide. It is my honor to introduce a young lady who is being recognized by the Rustberry um, Awards for making a difference. She is Melissa Gertz, and she heads up an organization called Community Justice Center in Trenton, New Jersey. Um, Melissa, describe that organization. Uh, the Community Justice Center is a legal services outfit, the first of its kind in New Jersey, to serve disabled veterans and others that struggle with invisible illnesses, specifically traumatic brain injury and PTSD. I am a survivor of both, and so I, uh, I understand the struggle very well. Sure. By the way, I'm going to drop this, if you don't mind, because I also have, Melissa asked me to hold this in case she needed it, and, and let's put things in perspective. This is an iPad with some information. And you thought maybe you might need this for the interview because you said you heard about my reputation and you didn't trust me because you're a lawyer and you're, you know, you know. you're skeptical <laughs> in a good way. But more to the point, you understand this on a personal human level. You've created this organization to make a difference for others. How and why? Well, like I said, in 2004, I was uh, T-boned by a truck and nearly died. Um, I didn't, thankfully. I survived. But with a face full of hardware, extremely limited vision, and a traumatic brain injury. Fast forward five years, the uh, veterans were coming back in record numbers with TBI and PTSD and not getting the benefits that they deserved or the treatment. We all know the result of this, record number of suicides. I, on, on the other hand, knew, understood why. It's interesting. You experienced it. You've had your challenges. You have had a very successful career as an attorney. But my question is, what made you say, I want to help others while I'm struggling with my own situation? That's really what I'm curious about. And frankly, I think a lot of folks watching are. Cornell West said it best. Just the great professor Cornell West, Dr. West. Yes. Justice is what love looks like in public. I have always had an, kind of been called and have an, an imperative to, in any particular moment, do whatever was in my power to stand up and rise, rise above and against injustice. And this, to me, was just another form of injustice. So it's so interesting, the, the awards for making a difference, the Raspberry Awards. You are being recognized. You're called a hero. Uh, honoring New Jersey's hero is, in fact, what the brand is and the tagline is. Do you consider yourself a hero? No, I don't. Uh, I. I, f I would like to put myself out of business, to be honest, because the veterans shouldn't need me. They should be getting what they deserve from the beginning. They shouldn't need us lawyers to come in and fight for them. They need to be believed. Uh, I, what do you I, mean believed? You know, uh, traumatic brain injury, PTSD, other invisible illnesses, you can't see it. If you look fine, you must be fine. I look fine, but I'm definitely not fine. Uh, that That's part of the problem is that there's a lack of education um, among invisible things, and like I said, it's, you're, if you're missing a limb, you can see it. If you have a brain injury, you can't see it. But it's just as chronic, it's just as lifelong, and it's just as debilitating. One more question, Melissa. First of all, congratulations on being honored. Because you look so healthy, you look so good, and the camera speaks for itself, um, could you let folks understand how challengingly, obviously you did not need this iPad, I want to make that clear, that was a crutch for you. Um, but how challenging is it for you so that those of us who don't see it and experience it personally can have a sense of how challenging, just frankly, just doing this interview is? It is extremely challenging. For example, right now, I'm in a ton of lighting that I shouldn't be in because it could induce seizures. I'm, I'm heavily... These, these television lights. 
fluorescent lighting. Most people with traumatic brain injury have issue, have severe light sensitivity. So while I'm legally blind, I have superpower, superhero night vision. I can see everything in the pitch black, but when you put fluorescent lighting or spotlights, I can't see anything. I want us to say thank you. Um, you have taken the challenges that you face every day and decided to make a difference in the lives of others, particularly veterans dealing with post-traumatic stress syndrome, with traumatic brain injuries, which you've experienced yourself. And um, I just wish there were more people like you in the world. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you. And I hope this helps uh, open more doors and more hearts and save some more lives. State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation, celebrating over 25 years of broadcast excellence. State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is brought to you from the Agnes Veris NJTV studio at 2 Gateway. Funding has been provided by Summit Medical Group, Wells Fargo, the Russell Berry Foundation, Georgian Court University, the Turrell Fund, Supporting Right from the Start NJ, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and by the New Jersey Office of the Insurance Fraud Prosecutor. Insurance fraud costs every New Jersey family over $1,300 every year. Report fraud at njinsurancefraud.org.